Good morning. It's Monday, the 31st of July, the last day of the month and also the last day for filing income tax returns. I'm Govindraj Ethiraj in Mumbai, where the rain seems to have eased a bit. Our top stories and themes for today. Action in the semiconductor space continues to pick up as AMD announces a $400 million investment. Can the sovereign of India be taken to court for deadly cough syrups exported by private companies? Gig workers are a visible part of the country's workforce. A bill in Rajasthan wants to protect them. Can it? The Bank of England hires former US Federal Reserve head Ben Bernanke to find out why the United Kingdom slept through inflation rises. And finally, will summer ever be the same again? This is a core report with Govindraj Atiraj. More action in the chip space, AMD to step up India presence. I recall meeting with Srini Rajam, who had set up ETM systems in Bangalore many years ago. ETM makes digital signal processors and is considered one of the first companies to build intellectual property, which it could license out, in this case for audio and now video codecs. Rajam came from Texas Instruments, which of course had been around in India for much longer. It started in 1985. Intel, Texas Instruments, Qualcomm and many more are in Bangalore and many of them do the core design for semiconductors which make up more than 50% of the value of the chip. Now these engineers are in India, though developing products for their parent companies mostly in the United States. India, of course, as we all know, is now in a furious race to start building semiconductors in India and several projects have already been announced as we've discussed in previous episodes. The last week also saw a major conference held in Gandhinagar, the same place that hosted the finance ministers and central bank governors for a G20 summit just the week before, this time now to woo investors in semiconductors. Prime Minister Modi, who was there, said India was a viable chip-making hub. Earlier, people were questioning our aim to make chips and were asking why invest in India. Now the question has changed to why not. He also added that we were, as in India, was rolling out the red carpet for investors. At the same time, American semiconductor company Advanced Micro Devices or AMD announced plans to invest $400 million in India over the next five years. The planned investment includes a new AMD campus in Bangalore, though that will serve as the company's largest design center, as well as the addition of approximately 3,000 new engineering roles in the next five years. The AMD new campus is expected to open before the end of this year. AMD has been here for more than 22 years since 2001, when its first site was established in New Delhi. The upcoming 500,000 square foot Bangalore campus is set to increase its office footprint to 10 locations now in India across Bangalore, Delhi, Gurgaon, Hyderabad and Mumbai. Mark Papermaster, the Executive Vice President and CTO or Chief Technology Officer of AMD said that from a handful of employees in 2001 to more than 6,500 employees today, AMD has grown its India footprint. AMD, like I said again, is not alone. Many other chip companies are here in India and they are all expanding. The investments, of course, are lining up, though it's looking more like the hardware will happen in Gujarat, where Vedanta, which is working on reviving a venture that had Foxconn as a partner earlier, fell apart, will come in, while all the other design companies are more likely to be in Bangalore or around that, where they already are sitting in the very companies that have already been around for decades, including AMD, of course. Now, all scenarios are, of course, fine, but it will be interesting to see how and where the investments flow within India. 
Speaking about investments, last week the BSC benchmark fell by about 524 points and on Friday, July 28th, the Sensex fell by 106 points to settle at 66,160 and the Nifty fell 14 points to finish at 19,646. The BSC benchmark, to roll back a little bit, had hit its lifetime peak of 67,619 on the 20th of July. Now, the week ahead is many things to look out for, including, of course, results season, which continues, and another batch of initial public offers, including a non-bank finance company and a pharma company. The proposed raises are large between 1,000 to 1,500 crore rupees for these two, apart from three smaller IPOs. Can the Indian government be taken to court on a cough syrups case? A presidential task force has recommended the Gambian government to explore legal action against the Indian government, maiden pharmaceuticals and a local drug importer for deaths of 70 children last year due to kidney injury allegedly caused by an India-made cough syrup, the Economic Times is reporting. It is safe to conclude without any qualms that the deaths of the 70 children below the age of 5 between July and October 22 related to acute kidney injury are a direct result of contaminated medicines found in four cough and cold syrups imported by Atlantic Pharmacy from Maiden Pharmaceuticals in India, the Gambian Task Force said in its report. Gambia is a small country located on the West African coast and has a population of around 2.9 million. The cough syrups were found to have been contaminated with cheaper substitutes. While deadly cough syrups have been making the news for the right reasons, there are other medicines too which are turning out to be contaminated in India, again for various failures, advertent or inadvertent in the manufacturing process. Last week, Bloomberg News reported that a cold medication made in India and sold in Iraq is tainted with toxic chemicals according to tests commissioned by the news agency itself. A bottle of cold out, that's the name, Purchased at a pharmacy in Baghdad in March contained 2.1% ethylene glycol, according to Valisure LLC, an independent US laboratory. That's apparently about 21 times the widely accepted limit. The compound is lethal to humans in small amounts and played a role in mass child deaths caused by Indian-made cough syrups in Gambia and Uzbekistan, Bloomberg said. To return to Gambia again, could the sovereign of India be taken to court And in any case, what is the current status on this matter, which made headlines almost a year ago? To discuss this, I'm joined by Murali Neelakantan, Principal Lawyer at Amicus, an earlier Global General Counsel with Denmark Laboratories and Sipla Laboratories. This is a slightly complicated answer, and I apologize for that. Uh, Responsibility of government happens at two different levels. One is at international law level at the ICJ, where countries fight against each other and say you're responsible for things. Another is in their own domestic courts. I mean, domestic courts, courts in Gambia, courts in Sri Lanka, somewhere else. Now, I understand the Gambian position, which is that the Indian government is complicit in this. This could not have happened without action or inaction of the Indian government. I don't know what the Gambian law on this is. So, in many countries, foreign governments can be sued. And they cannot claim sovereign immunity for everything. And therefore, there is a chance, and this might be a test case, where some countries say, listen, the manufacturer is responsible, but the manufacturer couldn't have got to the stage of causing injury or death without some complicity from the Indian government. And therefore, it may be possible to sue foreign governments in local courts, depending on what their law on the limits of sovereign immunity is. So, I'd be very keen to see this as a, as a good test case. I don't know where else this has happened. 
Got it. So let me then expand this a little. The problem about these deadly cough syrups now is almost a year old. And we've seen it go to many countries. Uh, There has been all sorts of actions and reactions by uh, various people, including the government of India, trying to make sure that there is better compliance and so on. So where do we stand on that? I, I think from two, three points. One is from the manufacturing process itself, which is where it all happens. And second is the the legal regulatory point where the enforcement of uh, all these laws should take place. I think this has been going on for a very long time in India. It's making news because it's international. So uh, we've had cough syrup deaths in Bombay, for example, if you remember, in the 90s. But clearly nothing's been done from a regulatory standpoint to make sure that these things don't occur again. So there is clearly laxity in having regulations and in enforcing them. Now, it's only recently that for cough syrups, there was a test protocol to identify ethylene glycol. So despite it being 20 years now, we've only now had a test protocol for ethylene glycol. So that's been the delay. Knowing that it's a contaminant, knowing that it's happening, we've done nothing about it. Secondly, it's not a problem only with cough syrups in India. We've seen Indian-made cough syrups failing tests and causing injury and death in many parts of the world. But it's to other products as well. We've seen with creams, we've seen it with eye drops. So clearly there's a big issue that the world sees now with Indian manufacturing. And I give you an example of that where the Global Fund and MSF have refused to use certain Indian products because they found testing failed and it was dangerous. So now it's become a global issue from what was essentially a domestic issue has now become a global issue. I'm disappointed that the Indian government hasn't done it. So even when they know that this is an issue, they haven't shut down the plant. If people have died, you should shut down the plant. In many instances, all they've said is, we will not allow you to manufacture this particular product for a period of time. Now, that doesn't really solve any problems. What I would have expected to see is more inspections, more paperwork to be submitted and enforcement of that paperwork. So you see the whole GMP good manufacturing practice process. Identify what is wrong with it. Make sure it is fixed. If it is not fixed, there's a problem with the process. So we'll shut down the plant. That is what the US does when the US FDA comes in to inspect. It will issue an import alert, which means that you can't produce these products and send them to the United States, which is lock you out of the market because you're a dangerous plant. I would expect something like that in India where they shut down the plant and say, unless you do the rectification, we won't allow you to do it. What troubles me more is the Jan Vishwas bill that has been through recently, where they are classifying what is acceptable and what is not. So even where it doesn't meet the standard, they're saying it's acceptable. I find that very worrying. So the Indian response is the exact opposite of what I'd expect a good regulator to do. So I'll come to that in a second. But, you know, now in a, in a very general way, there are obviously thousands of such manufacturers and the compliance is also in some ways self-regulatory. I mean, there is obviously inspections which will take care of it and test it. But how do you, in an industry like this, which is so scattered, actually control every, uh, let's say, batch of ingredients that goes in where it's mixed and made into something and the product comes out? So it's quite likely that eight or nine out of 10 times, the product is fine. And it's only that one or two times when that substitution may have happened of, of a chemical or an ingredient, which has caused this problem. Uh, not quite. Usually what happens with these is that once you can get away with it, you do a batch and you get away with it then that becomes a bad habit that continues because you think you can get away with it. 
So it is not as if it's happening in some patches and not happening with the others. With DEG, it's a cost issue. It's a cheaper ingredient, and therefore you will put it through. Similarly, in the manufacturing process, you may use some shortcuts because it's expensive, and then you may put it through. So the issue is the attitude and the culture that you've built in India to saying we can get away with it. So it may be simple things like dissolution. The tablet doesn't dissolve. Maybe simple things like the content of the ingredient in the tablet. It's not just chalk, it's more than chalk. We are okay with all of that. That's what is the message from government. You say, oh, don't worry about it, it's okay. And that's the worrying part, that if government really wanted to do something and establish India as the pharmacy of the world, it needs to say that every product coming out of India is very good, is an international standard product. It takes only a few to completely close down the market for us. What it does to the rest of the world is say that the Indian regulator is not trustworthy. The Indian process is not trustworthy. And the Indian manufacturers are not trustworthy. Once you lose trust, then frankly, the market collapses on you. And that's what I fear will happen, especially with the large buyers. So institutional buyers like the Global Fund uh, will be very worried about these kind of things. And so I suspect what they will do is ask you for an independent certificate from another body. So I suspect the next step will be for WHO or these global buyers to say that once the product comes into a country, we will have our own testing lab or an independent testing lab in those countries, look at these products, test them before we actually buy them. I think that will be the next step and that's very worrying for us. So the CDSO, which is the Central Drug Standard Control Organization, has said that drugs must be, uh, you know, meet all standards of Indian pharmacopoeia, that's IP. This is one question. And the second is that you talked about the Jan Vishwas bill. So you feel that the, the CDSO guideline or, or diktat, I don't know if, if you call it a diktat, but is, that's not sufficient? Uh, not at all. Because we've said so far that it meets GMP, which is a certification by the regulator. And all of these entities which have produced these dangerous products have all been certified as GMP. So the problem hasn't gone away by saying it must be GMP. They are not complying with it and we are not ensuring that they comply with it. That's the regulator's task and the regulator is not. The diktat from the CDSO really seems to mean nothing because we continue to see these issues beyond cough syrups. On the issue of the government being okay with it, if you have a list of deficiencies that you're willing to overlook, then you are starting down a very, very slippery slope, isn't it? You're okay with this, you're okay with this. And there's a list of 30 items. We include things like heavy metals. It's not a simple thing about, you know, whether it's 99 or 100. We're saying, for example, that if there's only 70% of that drug, it's okay. Now, that's very dangerous. 70% of a dose is inadequate in many circumstances. So it's inadequate in simple things like hypertension drugs, diabetes drugs. Because suddenly you realize that your diabetes is not in control. And that can cause organ damage. It's inadequate for uh, antibiotics. Because you are underdosing and therefore you could cause resistance. So there are lots of issues with thinking that it's okay. It is not standard. We know it is not standard, but we lower our standards. Again, that doesn't give the global audience and the global regulators or the global buyers any faith in the Indian system. I see that as a very worrying thing. I mean, the Jan Vishwas bill does talk about, I mean, it's a separate debate. I don't want to get into it right now, but because it's more domestic, I'm assuming. It does talk about allowing compounding of, of offenses as opposed to imprisonment, which was there earlier, which I think is a concern that's been expressed at this point. It is. Uh, but what they're saying is that we will not prosecute for these deficiencies in the product. So I think of it as 
we are allowing you to get away with it by paying a small fine. And that attitude to it is what is worrying. So the global audience will look at this and say, we don't trust your system. Rather than fixing the system, you're saying we'll let you get away with it with a small fine. So that is the messaging that will go across. And that for me is very worrying. Okay. So you're saying whether the, the nature of that, uh, let's say, dilution of medicine, I mean, basically, let's say the efficacy is lower. So even if the government is saying that we will not prosecute you for that and only fine you, what you're saying is that whether it's just lowering of efficacy or whether it's toxic in terms of the ability to, let's say, cause harm, uh, they should be treated alike. I think we should have standards and not dilute them, especially at a time like this when we've had so many disasters on so many products. The messaging is just very, very wrong. We need to hold people accountable for their standards and we are not doing it. We haven't prosecuted. I mean, if you read Dinesh's book, uh, The Truth Pill, who has gone to jail even for killing kids? You know, we know the story from four years ago where the cough syrup killed kids in Jammu. Nobody has gone to jail yet for it. So there is where we expect enforcement. We don't see it. Instead, we have the reverse saying we won't even prosecute you. You can pay a fine. I'm not saying it's going to happen in every circumstance, but the last 40, 50 years tells us that we don't enforce, we don't put people in jail, and people are therefore lax about quality standards. And now we're seeing it at a global scale. Very worrying. Right. Uh, Murli, thank you so much for joining me. Not at all. Will a new gig workers bill help them? The state of Rajasthan has introduced a new bill to protect gig workers, a subject that has seen much discussion, particularly in the last few years, in step with the rise of the gig economy, but not much action. The Rajasthan Platform-Based Gig Workers Registration and Welfare Bills extends rights to gig workers, such as being registered with the state, having access to general and specific social security schemes, and having an opportunity to be heard for any grievances, among others. An important component of this law is the setting up of a platform-based gig workers welfare board with multiple stakeholders being present, apart from the government, of course. Now, there has been much clamor for laws that support gig workers that are informal and yet more visible than, say, traditional informal economy workers, who in any case represent around 90% of India's workforce. The Rajasthan bill is a step in this direction, though it's not clear how well it will work particularly when no other state has similar laws or how companies with a pan-India presence could comply that easily. It does, however, seem like a first step towards formalization. I try to pose two questions. First, what does this bill say and mean? Second, where do gig workers in general stand post this move particularly and also in other parts of the country? I reached out to Sabina Devan, president of Just Jobs Network, a global research organization with an India presence and which also produces empirical research on job creation and workforce development. So let me first take you through the key tenets of the bill. Uh, so this bill sets up a platform-based gig workers welfare board that will be governed by government bureaucrats, representatives of gig workers, representatives of aggregators or what they call primary employers, and then a couple of other civil society and other experts all of which will be nominated by the state government. So now this welfare board, this platform-based gig workers welfare board, does three things. One, it enables workers to register with the state. So the state government will maintain a database of gig workers and generate a unique ID for each of these workers. 
The second thing that it does is it gives workers technically the access to general and specific social security schemes. And this is significant because presumably once these workers are registered with the state and they become visible, sometimes these it's, you know self-employed uh, disaggregated workers are not visible to the state. So once they become registered, they become visible to the state. And this would presumably make it easier for them to access existing government schemes and social security as well. But the development that I think most people are very excited about is the setting up of a platform-based gig workers fund and welfare fee. And what this is, is that the aggregators will have a fee levied on them for every transaction. So a percentage of every transaction will actually be put into this fund that will then presumably be used to extend benefits to workers. The government has yet to notify us on what that percentage of each transaction will be, but this fee will be imposed on aggregators and there are penalties if the aggregator fails to pay. The last thing that the Welfare Board does and this bill, it provides a grievance redressal mechanism. So workers can actually raise complaints that technically should be addressed through the welfare. So that is, in essence, what the bill is and what it does. With respect to what my assessment of the bill might be, um, I think that this is a very well-intentioned bill, but it's built on flimsy foundations that will be really hard to implement. And I think eventually it'll leave most of these workers exactly as they are now. You know, what was exciting about the conversation around gig work and gig workers was that it opened the door to a bigger conversation at a time when there's growing uncertainty in the world of work. You've got technology that's causing disruptions, climate change, the energy transition coming out on the heels of the pandemic, all of which are causing lots of disruptions in the world of work. At this time of uncertainty, the discussion around gig work and gig workers created an opportunity to have a real conversation about providing labor protections and social security and strengthening worker voice. And what I find disappointing is that rather than thinking through national and state systems that provide iteratively universal coverage to all workers, and this could start with, you know, starting with those below a particular income threshold and then gradually expanding. Instead of actually talking about universal coverage, we're settling for a bill that would actually end up excluding most workers who ought to get these entitlements. The larger question that strikes me is that this is one state and many organizations who have gig workers in that sense are pan-national or pan-India. So obviously, if I'm a gig worker in Rajasthan, I might get covered, assuming this goes through in this form. But if I'm in any other state, including, let's say, a neighboring state of Delhi or Punjab, Haryana, I will not get covered. Is that correct? Yes, that is exactly correct. So one is it is only relevant to those that are actually primary employers that are registered in the state of Rajasthan and all other gig workers will be left out. But equally important is even if we just look at Rajasthan as our laboratory, and the hope is that eventually other states will do the same thing. This bill itself leaves out a large portion of self-employed workers that we should be talking about providing entitlements to. But beyond that, it also leaves out a large share of gig workers. For example, 
those workers that are working from home, that are not location-based workers, but your micro-taskers or freelancers that are working from home. And many of these are women, right? So once again, we have evidence of another piece of legislation as well-intentioned as it is and how it's being applauded across the nation as being a groundbreaking piece of legislation for workers actually leaves a large share of workers outside of the entitlements, including a large share of gig workers, and many of which are likely to be women. And what's your sense on how this is likely to play out in other states? I mean, are other states looking, I mean, I'm sure they've been working on this even earlier, but is it likely that other states will come up with similar regulations? Is there likely to be a national common legislation for all of this? So the impetus for a lot of this is actually coming from the Social Security Code of 2020 that actually did talk about both defining gig workers and defining what platforms are, and then talking about potentially having a fund that levies assess on platforms that's then used to provide coverage, right? So there was talk about this, but it wasn't, of course, implemented at the national level. And there are conversations we know in some states that are considering similar bills to the Rajasthan bill. But again, this is problematic because we already have such a fragmented system of social security that we're now, again, just adding to that fragmentation by taking one sliver and one kind of workers. 56% of our workers are self-employed, including those that work from home that are, that are actually gig workers but are not within the purview of this bill. Also, Govind, if I could just add, the experience with state welfare boards in this country has been incredibly mixed, right? And there are several examples of state welfare boards that have significant amounts of funds that are not actually being used to provide workers with social security benefits. And that capital has just been sitting there unused or being misused in certain cases. So why is that our go-to solution? Now, I was talking to some labor advocates and gig worker representatives. And one of them said to me, you know, we agree with you. What we would ideally want is universal coverage for workers, but we've become accustomed to getting so little that we will take what we can get. And I think that coming from that place of like, we'll settle for what we can get for a bill that's really imperfect, that in the end, implementation is looking really difficult, will actually leave us worse off. Right, Sabina, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Getting Inflation Right, the UK response. Of course, not everyone times the perfect response to inflation, like raising interest rates just when it could start cooling prices and not allowing citizens to be exposed to runaway prices and costs. Now, this happened in England, though, and it is widely acknowledged that the UK was slow to respond, thanks to which much damage was caused and continues to do so to household finances, among others. The Bank of England, UK's central bank, is doing a review now to find out why they underestimated a surge in prices that began more than two years ago and made life difficult for citizens, the Wall Street Journal is reporting. The interesting thing is the person who's been hired to do this. The person is Ben Benanke, the former Federal Reserve Governor, a move which would surely be ranked as anti-national in some countries. Imagine calling someone from across the pond to find out why we messed up and so on. Though to be fair, this is not the first time former Federal Reserve officials have been roped in by the Bank of England. Now, 
UK consumer prices had begun to zoom in early 2021 as post-COVID demand took over even as supply chains were choked. The Russian invasion of Ukraine, of course, did not help matters, with the result that inflation in the United Kingdom had peaked at over 11% in October last year. It's since come down to about 7.9 or around 8% now, but that's still four times what the Bank of England would like. An inflation rate of 2%, by the way, is what most Western central banks seem to be okay with. At this level, just to remind you, me and ourselves, that inflation in the UK is higher than in India, which is now at about 4.8%. Such a reverse differential is rare. In June, a committee of lawmakers had called for a review of the Bank of England's forecasting process and the Bank of England acknowledged that it made mistakes, reports the Wall Street Journal. Anyway, the findings of this review by Ben Bernanke will be published in spring 2024. I am not making a case for any such review of the Reserve Bank of India's actions in the middle of last year. Though financial journalist, writer and columnist Shankar Iyer did say in May 2022 that while the world was on fire with inflation, the Reserve Bank of India was hemming and hawing. He also did write then that there was a perception in the financial markets that the Reserve Bank was second-guessing the union government and the oft-repeated theory about lower interest rates helping government borrowing as also enabling investments and growth. He also pointed out that rising inflation could derail the sustainability of the interest rate to growth rate matrix. And finally, that the Reserve Bank, to preserve its autonomy and credibility, needs to act autonomously and credibly. This was, of course, last year. Back to now, speaking of inflation in general and not the Reserve Bank, the US Federal Reserve approved an expected interest rate hike that takes it to a 22-year high. The only good news was that the markets had completely priced in this rate hike and the target range would now be in the 525 to 5.5%. Summer no more. Starting April to the second week of July, give or take, many well-heeled Indians head for Europe, UK or the United Kingdom and the United States. So much so that people often quip that you are more likely to see your neighbour from Delhi or Mumbai in London in these months than maybe you would back home. This is of course the neighbour you didn't want to see at any time or any place. Many of these travellers from India have now returned as schools have reopened and presumably work beckons for the parents. Might this change from next year? Writer and historian Niall Ferguson writing in Bloomberg says an entire economic system has evolved to meet our summer needs. He's of course referring to people in the West flying within the West mostly from North America to Europe and vice versa and in and around. Heat waves are changing all of this. Niall Ferguson says that Marriott is the largest international hotel chain in Spain with a total of about 14,000 rooms but the Spanish Melia Hotels has more than twice that number and has seen its stock fall by half over the last five years. Rising global temperatures, he says, would appear to be killing this version of summer, referring to the fun, frolic and beaches. None of what I have described is enjoyable if the mercury is above 30 degrees Celsius, he says. Indeed, he argues, sunbathing becomes life-threatening. And who wants a week on Corfu if a large tract of that island is ablaze? This summer, he says, in southern Europe has been less Barbie and more Oppenheimer. He quotes figures to say that there are 2.7 times as many days with mid-afternoon temperatures above 30 degrees Celsius in Athens, 3.7 times in Barcelona, 8.1 times in Paris and an amazing 10.4 times in London. 
All these cities are close to the sea, so it's not surprising that popular summer seaside destinations such as France's Côte d'Azur and Martha's Vineyard have been notably warmer in recent years than they were in previous centuries. And by the way, I noticed that the Wall Street Journal has three articles on just summer heat on its homepage, ranging from Houstonians, America's fourth largest city, moving indoors to streets getting so hot that it's burning and when to just go inside. Back to India and Indians, we are not, of course, as affected by heat. Rajesh Podar, Western Region Chairman of the Travel Agents Association of India, tells me that this season has gone fine, but of course, we don't know about the next. And people are still booking tickets for Greece, though a few months later. Also, many people did not get visas for Europe this year. Maybe they would thank the stars that they did not get to revisit a Delhi summer while actually trying to get away from it. Instead, many of those who were denied visas and of course many others went to Vietnam, Hong Kong, Singapore and others heading east. In the next year or so, with more non-stop eastbound flights starting or restarting, including to destinations like Bali, which of course is dealing with a different problem, an overdose of tourists from Russia and Ukraine. So will extreme weathers affect travel plans to these destinations? Maybe, maybe not. Though Indians are particularly resilient travellers, landing up, for example, in Thailand in the middle of civil unrest some years ago, while most other international tourists had fled. The urge to get away somewhere for these few months is strong, but next year may be tougher or as tough. It will not be so much fun for sure, particularly for big families with children. That's it from me for today. Have a great week ahead. And do stay in touch and do reach out to us with all your comments and feedback. You can write to me on govindraj at thecore.in or reach out to us on LinkedIn or, of course, X, which is, just to remind you again, Twitter. This was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at thecore.in. Thank you for listening.